Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Carlos, can you believe this is our sixth show? No, I can't. It's going really, uh, really fast. And especially because, you know, we do it every other week. I can't believe we're already at six. Uh, but six at, shows in three months of sh- well, worth of shows. Was, you know, um, it's uh, to me, it's it's a great, wonderful uh, way of spending time. So uh, I always look forward to it. I love it. I, I really enjoy these these talks that we have and and I'm happy we get to share it with other people. Yeah, that's that's really wonderful, especially because, um, you know, now we have listeners uh, on various continents, right? So, yeah, uh, we I think we have a we have listeners on every continent except Antarctica. That's okay. the only place that I, I haven't seen <laughs> us get a listener. And I don't know if we would even register we, in, an Antarctic well, base over there would register as uh, register being in Antarctica. Antarctica. Well, we'll have to work a little harder and get an audience there, too. <laughs> yeah, so if any any of our listeners know anybody who's living in Antarctica, please let them know about the show so we can we can check off all the boxes on all the continents. So who are we talking about on this show? Uh Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived in the 12th century. You know, he slightly straddled the uh, two centuries because he was born in 1090, right? So he was he was 10 years old when the 12th century began. Uh kind of like one of my kids, my daughter was born in uh 1990. So she is a millennial, right? Because she was born right on the on the edge. But Bernard really did a lot uh, in the 12th century. He's he's very unique and and very important, uh, not just uh, in, in the history of Christian mysticism, but also in, in in history, the history of the 12th century in in Western Europe. A very very good example of a mystic who is deeply into contemplation, deeply into prayer, uh, deeply into what we've been calling mysticism, but also extremely active in the world, very active. And uh, in some instances, uh, not only very active, but very powerful. He exerted a, a lot of influence on people who were at the very top of the church and the state in his day and age. So where was Bernard of Clairvaux? Where did he live? This is, well, it's France now. Uh, you know, the modern state of France is much larger than it was. There was a you know kingdom of France, but it was much smaller in the 12th century. Um, and there were various places that are now part of France that were then independent, uh, such as the Burgundy. And um, much of the south of France was full of, you know, nobles who were quite removed from everything that was going on in Paris with, with the French king. And this is the time of the Crusades. And um, Bernard was uh, involved in all the, all of these things. As a matter of fact, maybe uh, we can begin with this anecdote, a real life anecdote. A friend of mine who, um, he might have retired by now, but is uh, a lawyer for a very, very powerful law firm that deals with cases that you and I see in the newspaper headlines constantly, 
uh, chances are one of those cases is going to be handled by his law firm and perhaps even by him directly. And um, he told me one time, and we were, uh, you know, asking the question, oh, who would, who, if, if you had a chance to go back in time, who would you love to, to meet? And he didn't, he didn't wait a second. He just said, Bernard of Clairvaux. I would love to meet him and talk to him. I said, well, well why Bernard of Clairvaux? And he said, because he had his finger in every pie. <laughs> An amazing individual who accomplished so much in so many different areas, including the spiritual, right? Very impressive man. Uh, and, and also a great persuader, too. This is, this is real history. This is not an anecdote from my personal life. But when he showed up at Clairvaux, which was a new monastery, uh, and actually she, he showed up at uh, Citeaux, he brought along with him 30 relatives and friends to join the monastery. <laughs> he had talked them into it. So imagine that. So he brought the party with him. Yes, he did. And um, we, we can get uh, you know in, involved in all the details because they're all connected. That's the beauty of Bernard of Clairvaux and his life is that all of these elements are, are very deeply inter interconnected, the mysticism and the action. And this is always a theme, no matter which mystic you're dealing with. Uh, and the, the biblical text for biblical model for this uh, dialectic between contemplation and action is the scene in the Gospels where Jesus uh, is at Martha and Mary's house, right? And one of them is cooking and one of them is sitting at Jesus's feet, just listening to him talk. And the one in the kitchen says to the other, says to Jesus, actually, hey, tell my sister to come help me in the kitchen. <laughs> one of them representing action, one contemplation. Balancing those two is always uh, a bit tricky for for mystics, for contemplatives. But many of them managed to uh, actually accomplish incredible things. And Bernard is one of them. So what was Bernard known for primarily in, in terms of church history? Was he known for his mysticism? Or as you mentioned that he was very influential in the church and in public life. So was he known more for his mysticism? Or was he known more for his for the actions that he that he did both. in the church and in public. He was actually uh, known for both. And um, I'm going to run through a little list, right? Uh, first and foremost, most important thing is that he joined a brand new monastic order. And even though he didn't establish that order, he was responsible for, for its incredible growth. So he is known as a monastic reformer. And the order is the Cistercian order. It's called Cistercian because the very first monastery was in Citeaux, in, in East, what is now Eastern France. And uh, from Citeaux, we get Cistercians. And who were the Cistercians? The Cistercians were uh, monks who were very committed to following the rule of St. Benedict strictly and of devoting a lot of time to prayer and also a lot of time to um, to work, to engage themselves in, in 
practical tasks and also pray at the same time. And the Cistercian monks wanted to emulate or imitate the early monks, uh, even the, the desert hermits, as much as possible. And they established monasteries in what was then, you know, some out of the way place. They sought places that were far from towns and cities. But they became so important, the Cistercian monks, that civilization followed them into their hidden places. So they, they were actually pioneers of, you know, clearing forests and, and draining swamps and, and building uh, monasteries in, in faraway places, but uh, people would follow. So they actually play a role in it, even in environmental history. So he's known for that. He's known for, you know, being a monastic reformer. He's known as a theologian, more specifically, a mystical theologian and uh, a great preacher who was very popular, a miracle worker. But uh, he was also at the very same time. Here's the, the active Bernard. Uh, he was an advisor to the French king, Louis VII. He actually helped to settle a disputed papal election in favor of Pope Innocent II. And the Pope asked him, hey, uh, you're such a great preacher. Why don't you, you preach? We're, we're launching a second crusade. The second crusade. We're, we're launching. We need you to preach. So he preached second crusade, trying to convince nobles to, to join the crusade. He also did something that uh, might seem odd. No, let, let me re rephrase that. Will seem odd. He helped to establish an order of fighting monks, the Knights Templar. You have to be kidding me. No, I am not. I so am he not. was one of the founders of the Knights of Templar. He helped to establish the order and uh, gave them a rule and everything. So imagine that. And we can get into this later, probably at the end of our chat he he also was opposed to scholastic theology or at least let me put it more clearly he was opposed to the way in which theology was being approached in 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 these newly invented places called universities <laughs> so he wasn't a fan of 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 your line of work no as a matter of fact no we'll get to that later but yes yeah oh he, he, he didn't like the way in which theology in the universities was more about questioning than anything else. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he had a motto that he's well known for. This is the, what he thought about the way in which theology should be done. And it's summarized in a, in a Latin phrase, anima querens verbum, the soul seeking the word, and let's capitalize word the soul seeking Christ, but also seeking Christ, the word. So it's the soul seeking it. In scholastic theology, um, there was a, one of the early scholastic theologians had a different Latin phrase. Uh, this is Anselm of Canterbury. His take on theology, what theology is, fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. We can get back to that uh, towards the end of our chat, but it's just the main difference between Bernard as a mystical theologian and these scholars who are always raising all sorts of questions and training young clerics to keep asking questions. Now, you mentioned the Cistercian order. He led a 
reform, uh, a monastic reform, did he not? Yes, yeah, uh, because the Cistercian order was was new, and what what they were doing was going back to the rule of Saint Benedict from the sixth century and interpreting it strictly. What had happened, uh, you know, we don't need to spend much time on this, but the fact is, monastic history is almost a constant recurrence of a certain pattern, which is monasteries are established with high hopes uh, and over the generations, all sorts of corruption creeps in. And then someone comes along and says, oh, it's time to reform and go back to square one. And actually what had happened in, in, in the West was that the rule of St. Benedict caught on. It's uh, sixth century, caught on and many places were following it. But by the early 900s, a lot of monasteries had become very wealthy and they were filling up with the excess children of the nobility, many of whom had no vocation. They were not there because they wanted to be monks. They were there because that's where their families put them. So that led to a lot of corruption. And then came one of the first great waves of monastic reform in a monastery, also in, in southeastern France, present-day southeastern France, in Cluny, C-L-U-N-Y. And that's in the early 900s. And that came to be known as the Cluniac Reform. And Cluniac monasteries dotted the entire map of Western Europe very quickly. But then by the time Bernard is, comes around, early 12th century, a lot of those Cluniac monasteries are, are also becoming corrupt. So the Cistercians come along to reform the Cluniac reform. <laughs> so you see what I mean, the history of monasticism being a continual interplay between reform, corruption, reform, corruption, reform, corruption, reform. It's like a cycle. It yes. starts out, they go down their route, they get corrupted, they get crazy. <laughs> For lack of a better term, they get crazy. Yeah. And then a, a monk comes in and says, we got to start from the beginning again. We cancel everything. Let's right. you know, and, and clear the, the board is, and let's start again. Yes. And, and the thing is that reforming a monastic order from within is very difficult. That is why new orders are constantly cropping up. How long did these monastic orders uh, would typically, in what you've studied, would typically last? Uh, oh, uh, was it decades? Was centuries, it centuries? Centuries, and, you know. So reforming something that's been going on for centuries is is quite a task. Yes, it is. Yeah, especially when many of the people involved are the children of the most powerful and wealthiest people, which is what happened at many monasteries. Uh, monasteries came to own a lot of land because people would give them land as as gifts or they were given rents from land because wealth throughout the entire Middle Ages, wealth was based not on, you know, production of objects as became the case in the 19th century or, or trade or artisanship. But wealth was based on land because it was still an agrarian culture and, and civilization, agrarian economy. So, Establishing a new order is a way of making sure you can exclude all those people who really have no interest in being monks. <laughs> As also you can 
require people to take a vow to follow a specific rule strictly. So that's why, you know, we end up with hundreds of different monastic orders by the 17th century. So what kind of mystic was St. Bernard? He's usually classified as a love mystic. The, uh, the term that scholars prefer to use is affective with an A, not, not effective, but affective, as in affection. <clears throat> Focused very much on love and on, on the will. And of course, on like all monks, prayer. But the prayer was centered on love of God for Bernard. And he was also very deeply into humility as, as the chief virtue that one should aim to have. Being humble is very important, which is kind of you know ironic or paradoxical when you think this man has so much power and influence and he's constantly talking about humility. I think that's probably what set him apart from the others. It, it is to a large measure, yeah, uh, very much so. Someone with so much power and influence, not only in the church, but also in public with political figures and oh, in and, the community. And he knew what the temptation was when you have a lot of power. You know, you know the saying, power always corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, <laughs> which is taken to be a, a very wise and perceptive statement. Power can corrupt people. So Bernard was very aware, aware of that, painfully aware of it. He was also a, a visionary mystic. He had visions, some of which we know what they were because he told us about it. But others, which become legends, we're not sure that they really happened, but there are stories that are told about him that appear later about some of his visions. But he was not a visionary in the sense that some people think, you know, visionaries are always getting prophecies about the future. No, he wasn't that kind of visionary mystic. What happened is that he would have very, very um, intense encounters with Christ and, and also especially with the Virgin Mary. And one of the visions attributed to him that concerns Christ is that, you know, he was praying to Christ on a crucifix an image, right? But the image came alive. Christ came off the cross and embraced him. And another, which is definitely uh, from later, is that once he was praying to an image of the Virgin Mary, and that too, uh, what happened was, you know, as is the case with many of these visions, totally weird. Mary had uh, the infant Jesus on her lap, feeding him, breastfeeding him. And she squeezed milk out of one of her breasts and it, it went straight into Bernard's mouth. A while back ago, you showed me a painting. Yeah, there are many. Depicted that. Yep, there, there are many. Most of them, however, are not from the Middle Ages. Most of them uh, are later, from the 16th, 17th century, when many artists uh, started to be commissioned by specific churches and religious orders to do paintings of their saints as a response to Protestantism. So he's a love mystic. He's an affective mystic. He also wrote a commentary, very mystical commentary, on the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, many people know this already. But, you know, that's, a, that's a, a love poem, actually, the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. 
it's about a bride and a bridegroom and the love between them and that was a very very favored text for monastics and especially for all uh, love mystics or effective mix mystics where the bride is taken to be the human soul and the bridegroom is God or Christ and um, it, it's a very erotic love poem it's the most erotic book in the entire Bible which once again you know brings us to a paradoxical situation which is here are all these monks and nuns reading this very erotic book and they've all taken a vow of celibacy <laughs> so they they interpret what is said by the author of, of the song of songs metaphorically rather than uh, graphically or, or, or literally but Bernard very poetic interpretation of this love poem is perhaps one of his best known and best loved texts uh, not too long ago I came across an excerpt from a sermon he did on the Song of Songs and one of the things that came across to me was how unassuming of a person he was where his descriptions are not uh, his descriptions of his visions were not something you know grand or, or huge as a matter of fact you know to quote here he he said in this sermon the word has come to me and come often as often as he would enter into me i didn't perceive the different times when he came it and in there he goes on to talk about how god would come to him and would enter him and he would have this vision but he didn't really know what was going on until afterwards and then he yeah. would realize that he had had this vision mm -hmm. and it's very burner here's another quote from him uh which kind of sums up when you, you know you ask what kind of mystic he is and here's a quote from uh a text I'd like to spend more time on during our conversation. It's a text on loving God, which is perhaps his best known uh, text. He says, God is the cause of loving God. He himself creates the longing. He himself fulfills the desire. His love both prepares and rewards us. So you can hear an echo of St. Augustine there. You know, you have made us for yourself and we're restless until we rest in you. So God is the cause who creates the longing and he also fulfills the desire. That's a very good summary of Bernard's attitude towards all this, putting himself out of the picture, right? It's not, oh God, you know, I, I love you. No, God, God makes him love God. <laughs> well, on um, regarding that text that you mentioned that he wrote on loving God, there were... I believe there were four degrees of love that yes yeah that he details in that text can can you share yeah. those with sure, us sure 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 now this is a text that was written for fellow monastics right and, and also as is the case with many mystical texts there are steps there are different steps in the mystical quest and um bernard uh, like everyone else who writes about these steps he has his own uh number and uh, and he had four other writers have more levels than that and actually when he was writing about uh, humility he has another text uh steps of humility and pride that that consists of 12 steps but here this is about the love of god by humans and bernard says that there are four degrees of love and of course 
this applies not just to mystics, it applies to all humans. Humankind is divided into four different kinds of people who are at different levels when it comes to loving God. So what's the first degree? First degree is selfish love. Love of self for the sake of self. That's how we're all born. We're all born selfish. And uh, this is nothing new. I mean, Bernard's not making this up. This, this goes way back to early church fathers and especially Augustine. Actually, there's a passage in Augustine that is quoted very, very often. His proof for the selfishness that we all have is that he says he has seen it in babies. When, when a baby sees his mother breastfeeding some other baby, oh, the baby gets a real angry look on his face. <laughs> and then he also adds, you know, the only reason infants can't kill is that they're not strong enough to kill. <laughs> it's the human condition. It's the fallenness of human condition. We're all selfish. We just love ourselves and no one else, right? Whatever we do is out of self-interest. So this is all humans. This is how we begin. And that's where most people are and where most people stay, sadly. Then he says, well, what's the second step? The second step is still kind of selfish. It's love of God for the sake of self. People seek out God because they want him to do favors. They pray to God because they want this or that, right? Uh, they're dependent on God to shower them with favors and save them from trouble. And basically, they don't really experience God. And he said that's actually, sadly, wh where many Christians are stuck. They don't get past the second degree. Uh, but how does one get out of that second level? Prayer. And that's what monks do, right? Monks and nuns, they, they pray all the time. Lay people can pray all the time too and, and transcend that second level. But the unavoidable conclusion is that you look around the world, that's where most humans are. Uh, selfish interest in approaching God. I think we all can relate to that. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, you oh, know, yeah. as they, as the old saying goes, there's no atheist in a foxhole. I mean, a lot of times, you find yourself in a jam and and desperately praying to God, and the reason you're praying is you're trying to save yourself. It's it's a selfish oh, thing, yeah. but it's also but it's also something you see with with children where they don't want to be around their parents, or you know, they run away until they get scared, and then all of a sudden they run back to their parents. Yes, well. It's the, uh, the story of the prodigal son, right? Oh, gee, I really squandered all my money. I better go back. My, my dad has money. I, I can live better with him uh, than I'm living now, uh, feeding pigs and so on. It's, yeah, sure. This is where uh, many of us are. But here's another way of looking at it. Uh, in prayer, Bernard says, in prayer, you might get, if, if prayer is accompanied with a real desire, right, to get to know God, and, and God is helping you, you start to get feedback. And what I mean by that, because Bernard doesn't use that term, is, okay, praying to God, you can babble all the prayers you want if you're not connecting with God, and, and all you're doing is praying because you want things for yourself. You're not going to get very far beyond this world. 
But what Bernard says, uh, the third level is the level that monastics are aiming to reach through their prayer, where through prayer, they actually start to cross the line. And here's where the mysticism comes in, right? Crossing the line and actually experiencing God himself and experiencing the love of God. Where you, you actually have uh, an overwhelming experience of the presence of God and of God's love for you and how, how good God is. And, and then on, in this text on loving God, there are all sorts of reasons he explains why it is that God is so lovable and why we need to love God. And, but he also explains that, you know, in, in the third level, God carries you up to him, allows you to get to know him. So the third degree is love of God for the sake of God, which means you have reached a level of intimacy with God and he's lovable. Well, I guess, you know, let's use a human example. There, there, there are people in the world who are lovable and you meet them and, and you want to be their friend, right? Just because they're, they're so nice. They're so lovable. Uh, and they can be children. They could be adults. They could be of all sorts of people from all walks of life. But there are some people that you're attracted to, not just because of the way they look, but because of their personality. And, and also you feel that they love you back. And I suppose that a perfect example, let's go back to the Song of Songs text, you know, the bride and the bridegroom, people who fall in love with each other, and then they might commit themselves to each other and live with each other for the rest of their lives. And that love doesn't stop. You, you love the person for who they are, right? And this is what the third degree is. It's intimacy with God. Now, if we go back to an earlier uh, number of steps that we've talked about. The classical three steps of the mystical quest. Purgation, illumination, union. Bernard's third degree is illumination, right? You're, you're getting a whole new perspective on the divine, and you're actually crossing over and having great moments, and they might not be, you know, uh, ecstatic moments, but you do get feedback. And I don't know, for instance, I don't know if any of our listeners have ever had any such experience. You never know when you meet someone or if you walk into a, a, a church and you see people praying, you don't know what's going on there. You don't know if they're getting feedback, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It, it's You can't tell from the outside. And, and even when you ask people, if you bold enough to ask people, hey, have you ever had an experience of God? You know, have you ever crossed over? It's a hell of a question to ask. No pun intended, you know, but it's it's a it's a question that many people probably won't want to answer. I would have to imagine that every person has their own individual experience with God. Mm -hmm. So when you ask someone, have you had an experience with God? Maybe in, in their eyes, there haven't. But if whatever they've seen or felt or or experienced to you would be like you know oh my god this is god yeah or or vice versa uh it could work the other way around as well things that don't mean anything to you or don't register uh, for someone else could could mean something completely different something 
it could be an awesome experience for them. So it's really hard to quantify uh, individual experiences right. or, or with to people. Them, or to put them, let's, let's use another um, visual image, a spectrum, right? Like the, the color spectrum going from one end to the other, assigning different colors to the types of experiences that somebody's having. That's impossible to to objectively peg someone somewhere on the, the spectrum of what kind of intimacy they're having with God. But, you know, we've, we've already discussed St. Augustine, and he describes that, you know, he, only a, a couple of experiences that he had early on, very detailed. Monks and nuns write about these things when, when it happens, and sometimes they're asked to write, write it down. Bernard's writing it down because he is just uh, very, very interested in teaching others about this intimacy level, number three. And now you can be sure that there, there is a level of communication in level three. You're not just, for instance, in the case of, of Catholics, you know, reciting the rosary over and over again out loud can be very mechanical. But what Bernard is talking about, something beyond that. And I'm reminded of a scene in a what, what I thought was a very bad movie <laughs> from the 1970s called The Ruling Class. It's a British movie. And the main character uh, was a British noble played by Peter O'Toole, the same actor who played Lawrence of Arabia. But the movie opens with a scene where this noble is hanging on a cross. And the movie gets worse after that. But there's a question asked early on in the film about this noble who hangs on a cross and somebody asks him, well, why, why are you up there? And he says, well, I'm up here because I'm God. And then the question becomes, well, how do you know that you're God? And he says, because when I pray, I realize I'm only talking to myself. <laughs> and, and there's an insight might help us understand the third degree as Bernard explains it is you're not talking to yourself. You're praying and you're getting a response and you fall in love with God. So how, how do you get beyond that where you have that intimacy with God? What What's the fourth step? The fourth step, Bernard is very clear about this, it is only temporary. It's, it's true fulfillment is in the afterlife. But I have the text here of, of what the fourth degree is. So I'm, I'm going to read it uh, because it's, it's beautiful and, and it, it, it it's, it's explains itself better than I could explain what Bernard means. Anyway, he says, real happiness will come not in gratifying our desires or in gaining transient pleasures, but in accomplishing God's will for us. Even as we pray every day, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. O chaste and holy love, O sweet and gracious affection, O pure and cleansed purpose, thoroughly washed and purged from any admixture of selfishness and sweetened by contact with the divine will. I'll pause for a second here. What does that mean? Notice he's focusing on the will and he's talking about real happiness being doing God's will, accomplishing God's will. So he moves on and I'm reading from the same paragraph, right? Uh, sweetened by contact with the divine will is followed by to reach this state is to become deified as a drop of water poured into wine loses itself 
and takes the color and savor of wine or as a bar of iron heated red hot becomes like the fire itself forgetting its own nature or as the air radiant with sunbeams seems not so much to be illuminated as to be light itself so in the saints all human affections melt away by some unspeakable transmutation into the will of God. And that is very common for mystical texts. These, these metaphors of mixed liquids or the metaphor of the bar of iron in the fire or the metaphor of light in the atmosphere. What Bernard is saying is that the fourth degree is a merging of wills, the human will with the divine will that all you want to do is whatever God's will is for you. And this fourth degree, to return to the scheme of the four degrees, at this level, you love yourself for the sake of God. You love yourself as God loves you. So there's this beautiful twist at the end of the four degrees where you're back to love of self. But it's not love of self for self. It's love of self for the sake of the love that God has for you. You get to love yourself as God loves you because there's a union of wills. But Bernard says this can only happen briefly here in this life. And it, you might not ever attain this even more than once. It happens infrequently, he says. But it, that, that will be our condition uh, eternally. And once again, you know, of course, we're way beyond the line. You've crossed over. In step number three, this is a, a merging with the divine that he speaks of as deification. And um, it's intense. But if I could, um, well, I'm not pausing in the reading, but I am pausing and explaining what is going on here in Bernard. And what is happening here in this fourth degree is that Bernard is very careful to say, with these metaphors of his, like, you know, the drop of water poured into wine, you're not losing yourself. What is going on is a union of wills, not an annihilation of the human self. The human self is transformed and remains human, but has reached this level of intimacy with God that is so intense that whatever you do from this point forward, your sole intention is to do the will of God. Would you say in your understanding and what you're reading and, and based on everything else put together in the context of everything that he's, he's written in the past and, and his message, would it be the same as, for instance, the relationship that Adam had with God in the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. But it might be, but the problem with, uh, with that text in Genesis is that it tells us so little. <laughs> Uh, right, yeah. right. Uh, Adam is, is chatting with God. God is chatting with Adam and Eve. They, they have a, a, a level of intimacy, one might say, right? In, in so far as they communicate all the time. But we have no indication of what is going on inside uh, Adam and Eve. It, 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 in this sense, the story goes in the opposite direction from Bernard's fourth point. They actually disobey God's will. Right. And that's the whole problem. Yeah. The wheels come off the cart. Absolutely. And, and, and they stay off. That's the problem. <laughs> because... I mean, I asked that, I asked that because 
I look at it from the perspective is, is this how God intended the relationship between uh -huh. his creation, humans, and him to be in the first place? In other words, is St. Bernard's fourth degree the way we were supposed to be with God uh, before the fall? Yeah, well, that's uh, again, that's an excellent question. Uh, Bernard repeatedly in this text says that one of the reasons that God deserves to be loved is that despite the betrayal of Adam and Eve and, and all their descendants, he loved humans so much that he became a human being and sought to rescue us all you know, through the Son, through Christ. And that's one of the things that makes God so lovable is that you know, he became a human and gave his life for humans who were totally unworthy of it so that they could be transformed. Right? And back to um, St. Athanasius, 4th century, God became human so that humans might become divine. This whole deification thing is right at the heart of not just Christian mysticism, but the Christian religion. Which, as your question, you know, indicates, uh, one one can ask, oh, are are we being restored to our original relationship? And I think most Christian mystics, if not all of Christian mystics, say that in one way or another. They answer your question, yes, yeah, definitely. Well, I think it also raises a lot mm -hmm. of theological questions as I'm going through it in my head now with original sin and mm -hmm. and if we are able are ever capable of being in a spiritual position to to regain that same relationship that Adam had in the beginning before the fall. But we're we're getting to the to the tail end of the show and I know I wanted to to see if you had some of the visions assuming that same Bernard was able to attain all four degrees of of love. What were some of the visions that he that he had? Some well, you know, mystical these, visions? Intense, these intense moments of intimacy with Christ and with the Virgin Mary, and um, you know, and some of the artistic representations from the 17th century, which are very very uh, graphic, and take these visions. Uh, kind of literally, you know, you, you actually see Bernard drinking milk from Mary's breast. And also you see him drinking Jesus's blood from the wound on his side. And uh, that's that's intimacy of the sort that you find in, in the Song of Songs between the bride and the bridegroom. He was very, very devoted to the Virgin Mary, his many sermons on the Virgin Mary and what she represents, because, uh, yeah, but back to your question, the Virgin Mary is a, a human who is perhaps not exactly what one might call perfect, but she is the one human who has come closest to the divine. For heaven's sakes, you know, she, she carried the baby inside her, the divine baby, divine human baby. So he's very devoted to, to the Virgin Mary as, as a model, not just of the love that God has for the human race, but also as an intercessor, or mediatrix between God and human beings. Here's somebody who actually did God's will. You know, she said yes. And this is the, the emphasis uh, in Bernard. Human will 
is damaged because of what Adam and Eve did. But it can be repaired. And it can be repaired up to a certain point. But to be fully, fully intimate with the divine requires dying and crossing over to God's dimension fully. Can't happen here. So redemption is not complete. It's incomplete. Full redemption is yet to come for every human being. And we don't know how many times he might have had these experiences, but he speaks of it. We, we don't know that with any mystic, right? Let me back up for a second. We don't know that for certain, no matter even if they're describing something in great detail. There's no way to prove it, right? You have to take that's true. You have to take the, their word for it. So we're left as outsiders looking in on a scene. Let's say we walk into the room and we see uh, Bernard kneeling very still and psychiatrists can call a cataleptic state, right? Just frozen, not doing anything. You don't know what's going on. He might explain it to you later what's going on, but there's no way of knowing, which is when, when we get to talk about some of the physical phenomena of mysticism, then we get into a different question, which is, you know, how much can the human body be transformed by mystical experience? And is that some kind of empirical proof that this person is having a very intense, very intimate experience of the divine if they start glowing <laughs> or if they levitate, they get off the ground as many saints have been seen doing? Well, there's a whole bunch of different from stigmata to uh, to other saints uh, i know there's some that passed away and their bodies never decomposed that's right and they lie there in a glass coffin and people can see it so it's not like it's you know somebody's word you can actually see the person in there so i can't wait to to get into those and hear those stories as as well there are so many of them and i just discovered this past week two more 20th century levitators I didn't know existed. So it's there. It's there. So with that said, what are we talking about on the next episode? Oh, the next episode, I thought since, you know, Bernard and his four degrees talk about crossing over. Well, how do you get there? The question is, well, how do you get there? How do you get to that third degree? Or how do you get from the third to the fourth? I thought it would be useful for us to talk about two texts uh, from the same century, the 14th century. So this would be later than Bernard, but they have information there they're, they're about what kind of prayer works most effectively. And um, of course, that's not they're not saying this is the only way. Well, some of them kind of intimate that this is the best way. And one is in um, Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox mysticism, and the other one is in England. And um, the English text we'll be talking about is called the Cloud of Unknowing, and the Eastern Orthodox mystics are known as hesychasts, from the Greek word for silence, hezekiah. So that that uh, kind of sets it up for us. But we never got to talk about Bernard on scholastic theology. So maybe we'll we'll start with that just very briefly. 
because it's connected. What he has to say about scholastic theology fits in very, very precisely with what these other two mystical texts are saying about intimacy with the divine. Yeah, we can definitely touch on that uh, to start the next episode. What sounds to me to be a, a how-to guide to be a mystic. Or at least a certain kind, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Carlos, as always, it's been fascinating and extremely enjoyable speaking to you and, and learning so much about mysticism and specifically about St. Bernard or St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I know we, we spoke earlier before we started the show about the correct pronunciation of his name, but you said he can go either by Bernard or Bernard. So I know we've used both during this episode. Yeah, so. well, Augustine too. He's either Augustine or Augustine. Or, or for us Cubans, Agustin. Agustin. But thank you again, Carlos, and we'll see you all on the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <laughs>